Good morning and welcome to Talking Books. Now this is the last show before Christmas, so I thought first I would just give you some last minute ideas for gifts for book lovers in your lives based on some of the guests I've interviewed this year. Now don't forget, there's still time to order via your favourite local bookshop. Try Brendan Books in Bath Place, always our favourite, um, in Taunton that is, for example, and of course all the usual online outlets. And do also check author websites because... Many are having seasonal offers, I've noticed this year, such as signed and gift wrap copies sent direct to those you may not be seeing over the Christmas season. So for crime lovers, look out for Historical Crime Bloody Bones by Lucy M. Boyce, who was on earlier this year, or The Outlaw's Ransom by Jennifer Ash. We know her as Jenny Kane on here. She also writes fabulous witty romances uh, for those who like their crime, gritty, um, uh, up to the minute thrillers uh, written by Claire Donahue, who did a fabulous Shakespeare programme with us earlier this year one of hers is Never Look Back which is terrific for true crime there could be Amelia Dyer and the Baby Farm Murders by Angela Buckley who we interviewed back in May or last show's non-fiction thriller The Shipwreck Stories written by Jill Hoffs um, we talked about The Lost Story of the William and Mary which is, which is a fantastic book for historical fiction, think about Glyn Holloway's book, 1066, What Fates Impose. And for lovers of wit and romance and perfect short stories, try Debbie Young's work. Now we had poets Paul Mortimer and Paul Tobin on our show this year and both have volumes of their work available. And for children, look up Trudy Dove for her wonderful rabbit stories and Philbert Gooseberry's poetry. Now, of course, you can also Google the two writers I have in the studio with me this morning, although I've just heard from Bethany that she's going to have a, um, a, a relaunch almost of her wonderful book. She came on to talk to us about earlier this year, Poppy's Seed. That's going to be out early in the new year. So look out for that. And Trevor Snow. And Trevor was one of the very first yes. <laughs> one of the very first guests and it, it is a nearly uh, nearly four years yes. actually nearly yeah. four years ago it's incredible yeah. and he gave us some wonderful recommendations for restaurants in france which is a country he absolutely loves but today they're here to talk about their role as volunteer room guides at the fabulous national trust coleridge cottage and a significant anniversary it's 200 years since romantic poet Samuel Coleridge published the fabulous poem Kubla Khan. So, thank you both for coming on thank this morning. It must be an exciting time at the cottage because you've had Christmassy things going on, haven't you? We have. We've had uh, the last two weekends, we've had the cottage, and, and this weekend as well that's coming, we've had the cottage decked out as a Georgian Christmas. So we've had a lot of families visiting, and people who may not necessarily have the interest in Coleridge are just interested to see how the Georgians would have celebrated Christmas. They did have Christmas trees. It's unlikely Coleridge would have had one, probably, but we have put one there. Um, they decorated them with, with ribbons and uh, little bits of orange slices and that sort of thing not like we do with candles and lights but certainly Queen Charlotte at the time she was keen on the Christmas tree and, and the idea of Christmas they would have brought in holly boughs that sort of thing and we've got lots of candles around so it's very atmospheric lovely lovely uh, family time for children to come round and have a look and we've got various little children's trails and that sort of thing they can count the mice um, pretend mice in, in the, <laughs> that's good to say although we may have real ones as well I'm not sure but, um, but certainly and we have 
costumed guides, which which helps as well because it helps with the atmosphere of the Christmas time. Lovely log fire burning, the yes. original log fire, which Samuel Taylor Coleridge would have sat sat by, and it gives us a chance as well to introduce even young children to the to the story of Coleridge. Very important. I mean, he did live here in Somerset for three years. Very few people yes. know that. We think of them as the lake poets, he and Wordsworth, but they did live here, and very important time. And in Bristol as well. Yes, and in Bristol as well. There's a lot of West Country links with Coleridge. I mean, there's certainly those, you know, those those lovely times at National, a lot of National Trust cottages and bigger houses. The the, the decoration is always lovely and makes you feel a bit sort of Christmas cardy, isn't it? It's like those fabulous traditional Christmas cards that you imagine. Um, and I certainly, for one, didn't know that the Christmas tree predated Prince Albert. He gets all the credit for it, doesn't yes. he, often enough? He certainly does. I mean, obviously, they, they popularised it. And as I said, mm. it is probably unlikely that the ordinary, you know, the, the ordinary man in the street would have had a Christmas tree. But as I said, obviously, we, we, we do like to try and make it exact. And it certainly has been... Yes. Um, was the word researched and it is yes correct. all the greenery is mm. a pagan yes pagan yes. rituals anyway aren't they they go long back but certainly predating um a lot of our traditional christmas traditions um i i know that we want to talk about kubla khan um it seems i mean that's a um a surprising poem for me to be celebrating the 200 years of because it's certainly not my favorite of Coleridge's poems but it is one that has actually um, brought a certain air of mystery um, to the man hasn't it the way it was written and the story behind it and how he may have been inspired to write Kubla Khan why did um, the National Trust choose maybe to to celebrate Kubla Khan in well really because it was published in uh, 1816 but of course it was written while he was actually living in Somerset in Nether Stowey, uh, and uh, it it was that was in 18, uh, 1797. So it wasn't actually published for nearly twenty years, oh, and right. there's quite a, a story to that, really, yes. um, because of course I I guess that most people know uh, the the story of its writing, which was that he was out on uh, a walk as he often was up on the Quantock Hills, and he was up near. Colbone above uh, Porlock when he was uh, overcome by a slight indisposition as he puts it and in order to combat that uh, he took grains of opium and uh, he uh, needed to go and uh, recover from that and sit down or lie down and he called at a local farmhouse called Ash Farm and uh, there he fell asleep and had this fantastic dream, I suppose, about uh, Zanadu and Kubla Khan. And uh, he, when he woke up from it, he found that he had what he called later 300 lines worth of, of uh, poetry to write about and started writing uh, furiously when he was interrupted by uh, a so-called person from Porlock on business who uh, detained him for an hour so that when he went back to his room and continued, uh, as he hoped, to finish the poem, he found that all the words had gone, bar one or two. And that's why um, Kublai Khan is, in fact, called a fragment. But Mm. it's interesting that it wasn't actually published 
for nearly 20 years. Do, you know, do we know why that was? Yes. Well, yes, he felt that it wasn't finished and he went on tinkering with it, which yeah. wasn't unusual for Coleridge or Wordsworth. They tinkered with poems for, for years and years. Yeah, when you see the manuscript, original manuscripts of, of lots of famous poets, you sort of... We see it typescript, don't we? But the manuscript's got, like, crossings out. Uh, and Amazing. You know. Well, they didn't have computers like we no. did. To <laughs> the no I, I don't know how they did it. But um, it was Byron who actually pushed, um, pushed Coleridge into, into publishing it. It was Coleridge's party piece. He would recite it at parties, and apparently it was amazing. He would almost sing it. It was mesmerising. Um, and, and he w- would do this for years. And Byron really said, you, you really should publish this. Um, and he also published Christabel at the same time. Right. Which I believe you, you know, and I believe mm. that inspired John Keats to write La Belle Dame. Am I no, right? Christabel no. did not inspire. No, no, no. <laughs> this is what I've been told. But anyway, <laughs> no, I don't mean. No, 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 no that's right. That's me being. You yes. know what I'm like with John Keats. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's lots of stories behind how La Belle Dame saw mercy, mm. but certainly there are there are definite. Um, Resonances, yes, yeah, definitely. It, it's a Gothic poem. I mean, uh, Coleridge did like the Gothic. He did write conversational poetry as well, but he did like the Gothic poem, hence mm. the Ancient Mariner and Kubla Khan and, yes. uh, you know, these sort of poems. He, But certainly this one... Um, I mean, anybody who's ever tried to write, uh, I mean, I've written books based on dreams. The, the dream is ephemeral and goes quite quickly, yes. but you get the idea of it. But it doesn't make you a better writer if you've had it from a dream, whether opium-inspired or not. But, of course, it does give you that original little little sort of edge yes. to write it. And certainly that the rhythm of it, and I think Trevor's going to read us a little bit in a moment, possibly. Yes. Um, you know, that the rhythm of it, it, it feels like a, a, um, a trance. I yes, think. and, and I think uh, that they, they, there's also... A, a lot of discussion about whether um, Ode to a Nightingale that John Keats wrote, for example, was also um, slightly opium fueled. Mm. And I think we'd all agree that when you have that strange moment between waking and sleeping, when you're not abs- absolutely awake, but all those very vivid images suddenly come to mind that... Yes, whether or not you're opium fueled, or right. you've gone to bed on a on a banana or some cheese or something, it's whatever inspires you. It is it often. Does. I've very... had some of my best ideas when I've been recovering from a migraine, and there's no oh, doubt right. that sort of slight yes. um, jaded, not quite there feeling that you get if anybody's ever had a migraine. Like, the next day, mm-hmm. and maybe you're resting because you can't charge around the place, and your mind is idling. Mm. And that's when I've mm. had some of my best ideas for books and poetry, or yes. even phrases. You know, the sort of phrases yes, that you, and you have to down have to write about. Absolutely, they vanish. They vanish. They absolutely yes, go. they go. They fly <clears throat> from your mind. I mean, I have got up in the middle of the night before now and <clears throat> jotted down little bits. And even recently, proofreading my book, I've suddenly thought, "Gosh, did that make sense? That little bit that I, you know." And they'll cut. It'll come in the middle of the night when your mind is, as I said, in that sort of idle. Idle mode. Yes, and I think it's you know some of the dreams that are most useless are the ones that stay with you all day. You know when you've when you've dreamt about something that's not in the least weird. bit creative. It's very strange. But all those wonderful images sometimes just go like that. So mm-hmm. yes, now uh, Trevor, you are going to read us some, aren't you? If you're happy to do that, if you no, could I'm read us I'm very happy some. to uh, read a, a few lines from the beginning. Yes, of it's the Khan. ones that we'll probably recognise, won't we? I I hope so. I hope so. Okay. In Zanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf, the sacred river, ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round, and there were gardens, bright with sinuous rills, 
where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree, and here were forests, ancient as the hills, enfolding sunny spots of greenery. Now that's the beginning of it, and it paints a wonderful picture mm. of this palace, this pleasure dome. But of course then it uh, becomes a savage place and talks about the, the chasm with ceaseless turmoil seething and uh, that Kublai Khan heard from far ancestral voices prophesying war. So mm. from the pleasure dome to the catastrophe of war. It's yes. an interesting poem, certainly. Yes, it is. And, and Coleridge was a strange man in many ways, wasn't he? I mean, he certainly ended his life drinking like half a bottle of laudanum. You know, it was a, he was opium fueled throughout much of his later career, certainly. Um, but he's fascinating in, in so many ways. He was a polymath and he knew, he knew so much about so many different things. He could talk for hours. Yes to his friends about all kinds of different subjects and lectured. Um, and yet he's got this very mystical kind of side to him that well, maybe we can attribute to, to drug use. It's difficult to know. Yes, I mean, I think he probably was, what well, we would now say he was bipolar or whatever, yes, he was manic depressive yeah. or whatever. He, he wasn't a complete finisher. Um, I, I never <laughs> <laughs> no, he no, would he start wasn't. off with Let's huge do the ideas. Yes. <laughs> he would start off with huge ideas. I mean, one of the reasons he came down to Netherstow in the first place, he was working on a, on a newspaper in a magazine um, journal, I think they called it in those days, uh, in Bristol called The Watchman. And this was marvellous. He was going to print all these copies and have all this readership, yes. but he couldn't keep to the deadlines himself, let alone mm. get other people to keep to them. And as many of his schemes, it, it, it ran out of steam, ran out of money. He had creditors, so he needed to escape from Bristol. And he had a friend, Tom Poole, in Netherstowey. Mm. And Tom Poole said, come to Netherstowey. I'll find you somewhere to live. You can, you can, Coleridge had always had this idea that he would like to be self-sufficient, that he would like to live off the land. The uh, that was it, yes. yes. He had yes. this marvellous yes. idea yes. when he was younger that he would set up a commune, as you say, at Susquehanna. Yes. Yes. So he thought, well, I'll have my own little, little, um, little place in Utopia. Somerset. Utopia, yes. yes. Yes, and so he, he rented this cottage, which you can go to, Coleridge Cottage, um, and he rented this little tiny cottage. It was unusual for people who were... I mean, they had no money, these artists or writers, but it was unusual for them to rent tiny artisan cottages. They would usually rent big houses or rooms in big houses, which mm. were often available because mm. the, the moneyed people had these huge houses everywhere, and they were quite happy to rent them out to people. Mm. But the, even the locals at Nether Stowey thought, how weird this is. You know, we, they're obviously gentry. Sarah Coleridge was always neat and pretty and dressed out in, in Bristol and Bath fashions mm -hmm. and looking all neat and sweet and pretty. And yet they're living in this artisan cottage because it was much smaller than the house that you see nowadays when you go to Nether Stowey. Yes, absolutely. It was only the front part. It was just a, a, a somerset, two up, two down, with a scullery tacked on at the back, a little lean-to big garden and this was Coleridge's idea that he would be self-sufficient in this big garden and that he would write and he would do his philosophy and he would possibly do some more journalism he would you know he dipped in and out of a, a lot of things so yes a very complex character very carried away with each scheme at a time it wasn't long before the garden was full of weeds and they were relying on, I know, on Tom Paul oh he, he was, was. Yes, wasn't he yes. I mean I've always when I went to Coleridge Cottage he was he the, the story of Sarah Coleridge, who was his long-suffering wife, he was the most hopeless husband, wasn't he? I mean, 
He's quite an endearing character in many ways, but I think that's a, a big blot on his story, is that poor Sarah took on a lot of responsibility and was left alone to lose children and yeah. and cope with a difficult household. I think it's a, that's a very sad story. The Cottage brings that out very well, I think, actually. Mm. Yes. Well, he even had to be persuaded into marrying Sarah mm. through um, Robert Salvey, the, the, yes. the poet uh, yes. whom he knew, and in fact who was Sarah's brother-in-law, mm-hmm. effectively, and uh, because Coleridge had sort of gone off the idea of getting married. So we don't know no. what he felt about Sarah. Uh, he wrote poetry about her in the yes. early days, but um, later on that dwindled as well. Mm. So, and, and he went away for many months uh, and he, years at a time and left her, didn't and he? Left her. I mean, certainly the Wordsworths felt that Sarah lacked what they called sensibility, which in their means was poetry. Well, you know, you need to understand that a woman in those days, I mean, Dorothy Wordsworth wouldn't have understood this in the same way. A woman in those days had children to rear, a family to run. Hard physical work, which I think, again, the cottage does bring out. Did it not have a dirt floor? It did, did. did. absolutely, yes. yes. And it was alive with mice, which is, again, why we do that. That's when you said about the mice, I thought, we're not sure what the atmosphere. It was alive with mice, and she only had a 12-year-old girl to help her in the kitchen. Mm. Um, you know, it was hard physical work. She wouldn't have had time to have sensibility, but she was very well educated. Yes. Um, she had had a good upbringing. She was a very um, independent, feisty lady, mm. always optimistic. Um, <laughs> if she didn't back Coleridge enough, I think it was possibly that he didn't back her enough. Right. You know, well, there the, 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 the has yes. to be both sides yeah. to a marriage. You know, he yes. didn't uh, make her feel appreciated, so how could she I do think the same? Suffer, the, she suffered in comparison with the, the Wordsworth group and the fact that Wordsworth seemed to inspire women to be absolutely doting upon him and letting him off even his most pompous moments. He, you know, he had that. The, the, there's a wonderful book called *The Passionate A Passionate Sisterhood*, That's, which is yes. one of my favourite books, actually. And Sarah, it, it's not a matter of ha- lacking sensibility. She was just different, wasn't she? And not and quite so prepared to. Yeah, she was a very practical lady, yes, very yeah. positive lady. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think all the things that Coleridge liked in her when he first met her, her independence, her her, um, yes, all mm-hmm. those things were the things that later on, you know, went against her. Unfortunately, yes. yes. Well, I, I was simply going to say that she just wasn't able to join um, Coleridge and Wordsworth and Dorothy Wordsworth on their rambles over mm. the hills because she had to look after the mm. the menage at, at, mm. at home, mm. and that made her, in, particularly in Dorothy's eyes, seem inferior. Yes. But um, no, I I think that uh, as a volunteer, speaking personally as a volunteer uh, room guide at uh, at Coleridge Cottage. The story of Sarah mm. is one that has grown on me, and uh, mm. I've got a lot, a lot of sympathy yes. uh, for her. Yes, and I'm also <laughs> intrigued because, as a, a modern linguist, I'm intrigued by um, her own language, which um, was called by Salvi her lingo grande. <laughs> and if I may yes, quote do, from that, I don't know. Um, he. Uh, he, he wrote a, a letter to her friend to say, to the, try as he might, he couldn't get to the bottom of Mrs. C, as he called her, Mrs. C's lingo grande. And he writes, if the children, the childerumpuses, I should say, are bang rampating about the house, 
they are said to be rudderish and rough comtatheric. And the word comforter bottle is used, I suppose, uh, to design that there is some comfort in a bottle. But by what imaginable process of language and association snouterumpater can be, as she declares it to be a short way of calling mother, I am altogether unable to comprehend, says Sally. So I'm intrigued (laughs) by this lingo grande. Yes, absolutely, because actually she sounds a lot of fun. She sounds a lot of fun. I think she was, and I said that she was extremely well educated. Later on, she taught herself Italian in order to teach her daughter Italian. Mm. She um, educated all of Southie's children as well as her own. Um, She... Even though she had to rely on the charity of her brother-in-law, she never allowed that to sort of get to her in any way. Um, she she was a, a a pretty pretty good lady, really. You know, she wasn't the yes, sort of uh, very tough. Uh, yes, well, very she had tough. To, she had there was a lot of tragedy in the there Coleridge's was. domestic life, yes. wasn't there, with the children? And I don't think there's any doubt that Coleridge loved his children very much. Um, you know, there's poetry that's dedicated to them and. You know, I, I mean, they, they weren't at Coleridge's cottage for that long, actually. Three, three, three years. years that's yeah. all, yes. But it was the happiest time in their marriage, and this is yes. what we try and celebrate yes. when we're there. You know, we, we like to tell the story of Sarah and how it, you know, obviously did tragically go wrong. But there they were very much in love. They were right at the beginning of their... And, yes. and they were right at the beginning... Coleridge and Wordsworth at the beginning of their powers. I mean, this is the birthplace of the yes. English Romantic period. Mm-hmm. They collaborated on the Book of Poetry, the Lyrical Ballads, and that is recognised as a birthplace. And without yes. that, you know, that is here in Somerset. You know, yes. we... we yes. You know, yes. we need to celebrate it. You we know, it, it really I th- I is. So, I think so too. And they, they, the, um, they're sort of like the the first generation romantic poets, aren't they? And then you go on to the slightly younger, maybe born twenty years later, the the Byron, the Byron, Byron, Byron Keats, Keats and Shelley, 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 or I should yes. say Keats, hmm. Shelley and Byron. Byron. Yes, the right <laughs> way round. Um, yeah, <laughs> but you know, the the I think most people who listen to this show might know that I've I've had a crush on Keats since I was twelve bless him um, and the fabulous poetry that came later was undoubtedly inspired by the work and of those and I, I do know that Keats met Coleridge once but of mm. course Coleridge immediately thought that he'd sensed an early demise of Keats in just that shake of the hand Coleridge was incredibly he was quite full of himself yes, wasn't he, was. he? Yes. <laughs> yes, for he was, a really. nice way of putting it um, so I mean I think the the um, the National Trust is doing a, a, a brilliant job of making sure that the, the the role of Somerset and the West Country in the development of Wordsworth, because Wordsworth came, did he come afterwards? Um, he came to later Somerset. to Somerset rather than... Was he, was, he was there first for year. a year, 1798, because yes. at uh, Coleridge's behest, mm. Wordsworth came and he rented uh, a place... Uh, nearby and they used to spend a lot of time together and walking the hills which of course is how the ancient mariner came to be written Um, they also held uh, rather rumbustious now that's not a uh, parties at uh, Alfoxton which is the place that uh, Wordsworth rented to the extent that there were complaints and the the landlord refused to renew his uh, Ah. uh, rent um, there and uh, that's why Wordsworth went back to the Lake District and of course from that moment Coleridge wanted to go up there and join him yes 
Sarah didn't want no, that because no. she felt that there was something going on between Dorothy uh, Wordsworth and her husband and so she was very much against uh, going up to yes. the Lake District. Yes. But uh, what, what happened was that um, in uh, 1799 they did leave they went up to London where he took a, a job as a journalist mm. uh, so Sarah was happy with that but it didn't last more than the few months and um, then up they went to mm. the Lake District. And of course later on although there was such a strong bond between Wordsworth and Coleridge they fell out, fell out. didn't did. they? Fell out um, quite seriously and um, I've never quite got to the bottom of, of It, it was something happened. that um, Basil Montague said. Um, Basil Montague said uh, something he said about Coleridge to mm. Wordsworth. Um, oh no, sorry, said to Wordsworth about uh, Coleridge. Mm. Yeah. Something along the lines of the man is impossible to live with. Oh yes, which was true. Um, and it, Wordsworth repeated it, and um, it, and that that's that's um, that's where the misunderstanding began. And being yes. Coleridge, he took it far more personally than he needed yeah. to. Um, and that's and of course then what happened was you see Coleridge disappeared from the Lake District for a while did all yes. sorts of things leaving the poor hapless Sarah there with yes, the children know, relying on the charity yes. uh, of all of every I mean Tom Poole who is the the friend in Somerset and Nether Stowie who helped Coleridge in the first place pay, paid for um, Hartley the, the eldest son mm. to go to university you know there was no other money available and all I mean Coleridge had a, a very good annuity from the Wedgwood mm. brothers but it mm. all went on his own books his travel his opium. Yes, he went to Malta for nothing, a long time, yes, didn't right. he? Yeah. Nothing yes. for Sarah. And I mean, obviously, if it hadn't been for Robert Southey, Sarah would have probably ended up with one of the Coleridge's, you know, being taken in and looking yes. after their children. But she had Robert Southey, her brother-in-law, mm. and he uh, allowed her to stay. As I said, in return, she um, educated, educated his children. Yeah. And it's a fascinating them. story of that whole mm. group, isn't it? It's a lot more than just the late poetry. I mean, Robert Southey's wife was poorly, wasn't she? Yes. And and you know the the, the the relationships between the women, let alone the men, absolutely. are absolutely brilliant to to read about. There's so much information there the, and about the, the book you mentioned earlier on, mm. the Passionate Sisterhood. That was the one that really began me first of all on the yes. Coleridge story, and that because it's a, a sort of multi biography. It, 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 it as you said, it really makes shows you how in those days the women would often stay friendly long mm. after the men had mm. had. had fallen out with each other yes. I think they needed it you know they didn't have anything else you know apart from their homes and their children so I think they needed that web of friendship well, now we would think those men were frankly insufferable yes. wouldn't we yes. I mean the Wordsworth turned into a I can get a bit well, he was such oh, a my control. He was such a control freak. His daughter yes. Dora, I think we'd now see as an anorexic, and we'd see it because she could only control her weight. That was the only thing she could yes. control um, because she was pushed around by him and not allowed to do, go anywhere, do anything, marry, do anything she wanted. So he he wanted to control everything she did. So the poor girl was left with nothing to control except that. And I think nowadays there is certainly a, a book that I read recently, Katie Waldegrove, the poet's daughters. Mm. Um, I think that is accepted that she was likely to have been anorexic because that was what she could control. I mean, the, 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 you, the trust does sell these books yes, up at the yes, cottage, yes, don't yes, they? And do. I would really recommend going and having a look at a lot of the books that have been written about that period and mm. about the families and the relationships between them. And there's a lot of other interesting stuff too, I mean, about the fact that 
whilst they were there they were suspected of being spies oh, yes and, you know there are there are fantastic things and it's not surprising that the National Trust have taken such a an interest in Coleridge Cottage because they have done a lot of work there over the over yeah. recent years haven't they when was it all done the renovation project well the renovation started in uh, 2011 but in fact the the National Trust has owned the cottage uh, since the early 1900s yes. it was one of the first properties that the the National Trust actually acquired, but the but it was revamped um, and in the state it is now in 2011, and it is so atmospheric. Mm. And I I can certainly say uh, from my own experience, not as a, a Coleridge specialist by any means, that it's the atmosphere of the cottage that um, entices you and and. Uh, gets you going to uh, to read more about Coleridge the Man, mm. about Mrs. C, uh, about the the poets of the time and so on, because it's such a wonderful atmosphere. The recreation mm. has been done very, yes. very cleverly. Because I went before and I've been mm. since, yeah. and it has been done really well, because sometimes you worry it's going to spoil it, don't mm. you? But I think it's done brilliantly, and I know that they're still keen to have more volunteer guides, aren't there, if there's yeah. Anybody out there that's interested? Yes, you can certainly volunteer there. I mean, you, you don't have to, to be a room guide. You can work in the tea rooms, you can work in the gardens, and you certainly don't have to be a Coleridge Specialist. Or, no. Do you no. get the recipe for the scones? Do you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how they manage it. There must be a secret National Trust recipe. We know a lady who does. <laughs> I mean, it gets terrific reviews anyway, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. it's not, we're not just taking your word for it everywhere. Everyone who's been there is, is really impressed by the work that's been done. And we've won um, some awards. We won the Gold Small Visitor Attraction of the Year, which was the Southwest English Tourism Excellence Award in 2013. Mm. We've won the Silver one again in 2014. And we run, won the Bringing Places to Life National Trust Chairman's Award in 2011. That was just after the recreation. Yes. Yes. yes, so we, we've, yeah. you know, we are award-winning because we're very small. We're very very little tiny tiny yes, place tiny place nobody's but, going to uh, turn up and find an enormous car park no, and, and, no, and no, trails no, are they no, I mean it's, no, that's right. it's, it's a, an it's afternoon's visit but it's yes, so worth it and definitely. you know it's and you managed to bring it to life now we've hardly got any time left as you I always say right, this to people you know, okay. want to bring so much in and it's so fascinating um, but you were going to read us a little bit I will of, if that's all right a little bit of, of wonderful it's not a Christmas poem it's but it's a winter poem isn't it, it is. by Coleridge and this this was written I mean you can actually sit not in the actual chair obviously but you can sit by the fireside in Coleridge Cottage in the exact place where Coleridge wrote this so we know that much Fabulous. of his poetry was in there we can say with certainty that this one was written by that fireside and it's called Frost at Midnight the frost performs its secret ministry unhelped by any wind. The owlet's cry came loud, and hark again, loud as before. The inmates of my cottage, all at rest, have left me to that solitude which suits abstruser musings, save that at my side my cradled infant slumbers peacefully. Tis calm indeed, so calm that it disturbs and vexes meditation with its strange and extreme silentness. Sea, hill and wood, this populous village. Sea and hill and wood, with all the numberless goings-on of life, inaudible as dreams. The thin blue flame lies on my low-burnt fire and quivers not. 
only that film which fluttered on the grate and flutters there, the sole unquiet thing. It's beautiful, mm, isn't it? Yes. And there is some very sense of the Quantocks and that lovely area around, you know, the sea and the and the, the trees. It's very it's very atmospheric. Thank you so much That's for coming okay. in. I mean, it'd be lovely to have two hours to talk about this, <laughs> yeah. but I would heartily recommend a visit to Coleridge Cottage because the National Trust have done a fabulous job there. And as have the room guides. I mean, it's great to be able to give up your time for something like that. Um, now, you've chosen some closing music for us, haven't you? Um, are we all set up, Anton? <laughs> yes. Did you want to say why you chose this? I think we both just like it. It's of the period slightly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we've, yes. got, we've got to handle the um, arrival or the entry of the Queen of Sheba. That's, and thank you both for coming. And a happy thank new you. year and a very Merry Christmas to everybody thank who's you. listening. So we can chop that yeah. bit off the end if you're listening in August. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.